back in the fur shed. This is the Trapping Today podcast, and I'm your host, Jeremiah Wood. Thank you so much for being here, and it is great to be here. It is a little bit tiring to be here because it's about 11 o'clock p.m. on a Saturday night, and I've been outside working for about 14 hours. There's something about this time of year. You know, we always joke that here in northern Maine and other northern climates, we spend most of our summer getting ready for winter. Winter takes up a good portion of the year, and when spring comes, we start getting ready for winter again. So that's kind of what I've been doing. A bunch of firewood today. I worked on the tractor, did a bunch of maintenance tasks uh, with the tractor to get it ready to uh, do other work that will prepare us for winter. I sold some cattle and finally got some beaver pelts shipped off to some leftover pelts that I had uh, from this winter and spring trapping and uh, hopefully those are going to a good home and going to be used to make some pretty neat looking beaver mitts. So uh, the Trapping Today podcast is brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S dot com, Cots with two A's. It's uh, great to have those guys on as sponsors. You've heard from Kyle in the past several episodes and I appreciate having him on and hope to have him on again. Uh, they have uh, books, DVDs, lures, baits, traps, and a whole variety of other trapping supplies. So check them out and support guys that support the podcast. Thanks, Cots Bros. Podcast is also brought to you by Fur Harvesters Auction, where the world comes to buy wild fur. Fur Harvesters is run by trappers for trappers. That means folks at the auction house understand the ups and downs of running a trap line, the amount of work involved in preparing quality pelts, and the importance of each and every pelt that comes through their doors. Fur Harvesters, located in North Bay, Ontario. Furharvesters.com, their website where you can find a bunch more information. And that brings us to a little bit on fur prices. Uh, I'm not going to get into fur prices in tonight's episode because uh, basically because it's 11 o'clock right now and I'm kind of wore out. But uh, we have a really good episode tonight and a, and a bunch of stuff to get into. And also, uh, as I record this, um, in two days we're going to have kind of the final wild fur of the season to be sold at Fur Harvesters Auction in Helsinki, Finland, where they're going to wrap up this fur selling season with some Martin and Bobcat. So I'm going to wait until those results come in, and hopefully next week's episode we're going to do a whole recap of the big FHA sale, the uh, NAFA sale, and then the FHA sale in Finland here um, this coming week. And we'll talk just, you know, about the fur market in general, and I'll have a a few thoughts and ideas. But overall, the two sales that went on in this past week, uh, basically, for, for most items, prices maintained their same levels. However, fur harvesters did something. I'm not sure what, what went on there, but two items, um, beaver and lynx, did exceptionally well. And I'm not sure exactly what was going on there they they must have attracted some buyers that were interested in in beaver and lynx pelts for some reason above and beyond the normal market 
because beavers average somewhere around $24. And in the NAFA sale and in every other sale this season, beavers have averaged 10 to $13. So there, there was some, some really encouraging prices there. And links, I believe, were around 150 average. So again, and, and I think the NAFA links were about 70 or so, so which has been pretty similar to long-term average here, well, average the last couple of years. So so there were a couple of bright spots, and it's kind of encouraging. It, it's an indicator that maybe in a few uh, areas of the fur market, there's some some upside that's beginning to occur. And maybe we're going to see some recovery here pretty soon. I, I've said for a couple of years, I, you know, 2020 was probably when we're going to start to see recovery in the fur market. And that's just based on supply and demand and the the ranch, particularly the ranch fur um, market and all of the dynamics of that. Um, most of the ranch mink farmers are, have downsized and we're seeing re- we're beginning to see a lot fewer uh, ranch mink on the market. So that's that's probably going to help bring up prices and hopefully be a good thing for wild fur. So we'll wait and see what happens there. So in tonight's episode, I thought I'd do something a little bit different. And you guys have you know questions, a lot of questions. And by the way, emails... I'm I'm get, still getting emails in from people jrodwood at gmail.com j r o d w o o d at gmail.com would love to hear from you if you don't hear back from me in a couple of days uh, it's nothing personal it's been again such a busy time of year if if it's not raining I'm outside working this time of year so it's uh, it's tough to make time oftentimes I'll come in. Uh, from from working by the time it gets dark just grab a quick something to eat wind down a little bit and go straight to bed get up the next morning and start all over again so uh, oftentimes it'll be like a certain time in the week where I'll just sit down and just bang through a bunch of emails all at once so if you emailed me that particular day then I get back to you right away but sometimes it may be a few days so so uh, don't take it personal. Don't get discouraged by that. I would love to hear from you, and I'll continue to respond to every email. It just may take a few days rather than uh, re- responding the next day or the same day. So it's great to hear from you. I love to get questions because it, it oftentimes if you ask a question, there's probably uh, a bunch of other people that have the same question. And uh, so if I can address those in the podcast, then it can help. A number of people out at the same time and there was a particular case here recently where a guy had some questions and I thought why don't we try doing this over the phone because he was talking about getting started trapping and I, I I've gotten that question that broad level question a few times in the past several months and is a very difficult one to answer so I thought, let's let's bang this around over the, a phone conversation to see where it goes. So Brandon from Wisconsin, we had a phone call and I thought had a great conversation. We talked about a number of different topics from, uh, you know, just fur handling, uh, lure storage, uh, and equipment and gear, different types of sets. 
we bounced around a bunch of different ideas. So I hope this helps. And if you have questions and you want to have your questions addressed on the podcast or possibly uh, come on and have a phone conversation with me, uh, get on the podcast and uh, just talk it out talk trapping and and bounce ideas off me maybe maybe ask some questions uh, give some of your thoughts let me know give me that email and uh, let's talk about it and maybe we'll get you on a future episode so hope you enjoy this and thank you again for tuning in great to have you here let's get into it hey just a quick correction guys um, beaver averaged eighteen dollars and sixty nine cents at the fur harvesters may auction and uh, Lynx averaged $114.52. So I think I mentioned 20-something dollars. That was an early report on Beaver. But 1869 for Beaver, 114.52 for Lynx. Still very encouraging prices. Um, and we'll get into that much more in next week's episode. But until then, enjoy tonight's interview. Brandon, from you're from central Wisconsin, and you've been listening to the podcast uh, for a little while now and you haven't trapped before and you're looking to get started is that right that is correct awesome so why don't you tell me just a little bit about uh about maybe your background and and why you want to get trapping well i was born and raised in central wisconsin uh did a lot of hunting and fishing when uh growing up and a few years ago, I met a guy who trapped an older gentleman, and he he and his buddy were pretty big into trapping. They're both retired, and they ran quite a trap line for coyotes. And I went out with him one day, and the first day that I went out, we had a coyote in one of the cable restraints. And after getting that close to a live coyote, I was hooked instantly. Mm-hmm. So I went out with them guys a few more times, and I got to know them pretty well. And the next time that we had a coyote in one of the killer restraints, they actually handed me the gun, and, you know, they kind of gave me the honors of putting this one down. And uh, when we got back to the first shed, they taught me how to skin it. I helped out, and after skinning it, we fleshed it. And it was just a really cool experience. And... I got hooked instantly. That's cool. So you, uh, how long ago was that? Did you say? That was about two years ago now. Okay. So, uh, so you're just getting into it and, uh, you did, you took the first step that everybody's got to take is, uh, do that trapper safety course and you got that taken care of, right? That is correct. And, uh, what'd they teach you there? Uh, quite a bit. Uh, even before the class, I was really interested in it and uh, did a lot of research online, YouTube. And so I learned about all the traps and things like that. But one thing that they didn't really cover very well was uh, the tools, the tools that you need after the catch. Okay. And I have quite a few questions about that, um, mostly the first shed. All right. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you're pretty confident that, um, that you can, you can get going trapping and catching fur. Um, you've learned enough 
on that side of things that uh, the, the big gap is the first shed. Yeah, yeah, the first shed. There's a few other questions, too. Um, I know that you're partnered up with uh, the Cops Brothers. Yep. And I had a question about the, the lure, uh, storing the lure in the summertime. Okay. Uh, you're talking uh, what's the best way to store it, how long does it last, that sort of thing? Yeah, and the best way to best way to keep uh best way to keep it from stinking up, you know. <laughs> okay. Um I could give you a few ideas on on what I do. It's a very common question. Uh one question is always how long does it last? Well, a lot of times that can depend on the lure uh and how it was formulated, but usually a good high quality lure is going to last for years and years and years. Um and some guys even pull stuff out uh, out of boxes from uh, 20, 30 years uh, ago. And some, I remember someone talking about having getting that Tom, Tom Miranda when Tom Miranda was making lures and he was doing videos and stuff. Uh, they bought a bunch of his lures and didn't use them for 20, 30 years and pulled them out. And he said they smelled just the same as they as they did when when uh, you first got them. So uh, so a good quality lure can last a long time, but it's. Uh, and here's me speaking as not a lure maker. So, uh, but I know that Kyle will email me real quick when he hears this if I'm off base, and <laughs> and I'll I'll, uh, I'll let you know. But generally, cold, dark place is is the best advice um, that I could offer. Um, All right. As far as long term storage, keeping that from breaking down, because light can get through most bottles, and light will start to break down certain elements of the lure, and uh, heat. Uh, heat can be a bad thing too. So, so uh, basement uh, garage. That's you know if you have your garage is pretty well insulated, uh, like with a concrete floor and it stays relatively cool. Um, put that in in uh, some a dark kind of a dark corner of the garage or a dark corner of the basement, um, uh, and and that's that's typically going to be adequate for for most any lure. Um, now the stinky, the stink part of it, <laughs> you know, once you open up one of those bottles, uh, sometimes it's hard for that to go away. Um, the, the best, the easiest thing that I've done is if you get that bottle sealed nice and tight and, uh, you clean around the outside of it, uh, take some black electrical tape and and wrap that around the the lid of the bottle, like where the between, you know, the gap between the lid and the actual bottle. Yeah, yeah. You just wrap a few wraps of electrical tape, nice and tight, around that gap, um, and then break that off. And and that's a really good seal. And the even better for me, that's plenty for most all of my lure bottles, uh, except some some of my long distance call. Uh, sometimes I'll I'll vacuum seal that. <laughs> <laughs> I get a vacuum sealer uh, just for that reason that uh, it, it's uh, it's some pretty skunky stuff. Um, my sh pure skunk essence, what I'll usually do is uh, Cots Brothers actually sell, and, and a, lo a lot of people sell these, uh, but I've gotten a bunch from, from Kyle and Kellen. They're, they're eight ounce like bait jars, and, and they're uh, a plastic jar with a metal lid. And uh, I actually have eight ounces and 16 ounces. And I will take my lure bottle, my glass lure bottle, uh, wrap the tape around it, do that whole deal. Then I will put it inside of one of those 8 or 16 ounce bottles, screw that lid shut, and then do the same 
uh, tape around that bottle. And uh, for most any lure, that's going to do the trick for you. So electrical tape's your best friend. That is, that has been for me. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and don't get I the gotta... cheap stuff, because uh, the if you if you get a little bit cheaper stuff, it a lot of times it'll leave like a, a, residue. a residue on your hands and on the bottle, and you'll go to peel it off, and it'll kind of kind of peel off in layers, and and uh, and it kind of becomes a mess. So uh, the good stuff works pretty good there. I got a story about uh, the. Uh the stench that comes off of the actual lures yep. um i just ordered i just got in uh competition line wa- water trapping by tom miranda mm-hmm. and also uh Kronk's scientific muskrat trapping mm-hmm. by oscar Kronk. and as soon as i opened the envelope when they came in the mail you could smell the skunk essence coming <laughs> off of them <laughs> that's funny <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so they're obviously stored in the, the same room as, uh, yep, as some yep. lures and lure ingredients. That's funny. I had to let them air out for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, do you want to just keep firing off questions? Does that work for yeah. you? All right. Yeah. All right. Uh, I understand that there's a lot of people that put their flushing beam up versus down. Uh, they'll actually have it leaning up, almost like it's uh, leaning up against the wall. Okay. Now, is there any advantage to fleshing up versus down? Um, I'm tr- okay. I'm trying to picture this. Uh, you mean the the uh, the base? Are you are you saying that the base of the fleshing beam is uh, is up above the uh, nose of it? Instead of having the fleshing beam come out and you uh, you put it right into your stomach or sternum. Yep. While, while you're flushing downwards this I've, I've seen on a few youtube videos where people actually uh, stand the flushing beam up instead of uh instead of at an angle into your stomach okay so they're they're flushing they're flushing basically like uh, vertical with their yes vertical yep um so the, the thing with the flushing for me is uh, it seems like when people start doing in a certain way, they get comfortable with that and get used to it. And then it's hard to uh, train yourself to do things a different way. So what I, what I started doing was the sternum thing. So I, I just take the, the beam, I put the base of the beam. I, actually, I learned this from a guy out in Montana at a convention. He, he had a um, kind of a heavy duty metal eye hook with threads on it. And he'd screw that into the wall uh, for, and this was, he used this primarily for coon, uh, but he'd, he'd screw that eye hook into the wall like uh, two, three feet off the ground. And he would then screw a J hook into, he'd like drill a hole in the base of his flushing beam and, and screw in a, a J hook into that. And then when he, when he went to start flushing coon, He'd take the beam and he'd, he'd slip that J hook over the I hook. And so that was kind of just dangling there, uh, pinned, sort of anchored to the wall. And then he could go at every angle he wanted to. And he just put that flushing, the tip of the flushing beam or the nose of it right down in, uh, in his uh, sternum. And then he, that's how he'd flush coons. So w- when I started, I kind of, I tried to do that a little bit. And uh, I did it with coons and I did it with, 
I started doing beaver that way a little bit. It was kind of hard, uh, especially on bigger beaver because there was not, it, the beam kind of liked to rock back and forth and it didn't stay very stable. So I just started taking the, the beam and putting the base of the beam just in the corner between the floor and the wall, kind of just, just uh, sticking it in that corner and then going up and placing the tip against uh, my sternum and just you know flushing that way. So, so the way that, that you've described. Uh, now, I know people that that's all they do. There's also people that um, have the beam that put it on, like mounted on a sort of a platform. And so, so that way it's, it doesn't move at all. And then, and, and that can be at a variety of different angles, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the platform to me, um, talking with the guys, I figured out what I'm doing, what I was doing wrong. Basically my problem is my back hurts when I flush, you know, three, four beers in a row, it, it hurts my back pretty bad. And the, the, the issue that I ran into is I'm six foot three, six foot four, and I'm leaning over a lot, um, to, to get that thing fleshed with the, the beam sitting against my stomach. So, um, ideally it's probably better in most cases and more ergonomic to have something I think like that's fixed at that, just the right height for you. So, so you can stand there and you kind of hold the, the flushing knife in both hands and uh, start, you know, making that flushing mo- downward motion and whatever feels comfortable that you can do that for 10, 15 minutes straight and not have, feel a tightness in your back or your arms uh, or your neck. I think that's, that's a ticket. Uh, the drawback to that to me is uh, the, it takes up a lot of space in the fur shed. If you do that, um, it, you know, you got to have some sort of fixed uh, platform or something that the beam is mounted to. Um, so if you got plenty of room though, I, I think that's what I would do. Okay. And the angle, the angle, I think is is mostly uh, preference, personal preference. Uh, as far as as far as I know, like guys that use the the Necker knives, uh, at least just the general pattern. I could be wrong here, but uh, the, the Necker the Necker style knife, uh, you know, the the Weeby knife, um, the one that uh, Chag, John Chagnon makes, the Osable, those those seem to work really well, like pushing down. And then there's guys that use those, uh, I don't know if they're blue English, um, and then Stein, Lee Steinmeier's knives. I, I, I think those tend to, it seems like people that use those tend to uh, flesh more in a horizontal direction. Does that make sense? Okay. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and it's probably just, uh, just what happens to be more comfortable with the particular knife you're using. Okay. Well, uh, I guess I have a few things written down here, just going down the list. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as far as tumblers go, have you ever used one? I have not. Uh, I've been to... Did Did you listen to that episode that I did on tumbling fur? I'm not sure. Okay. I don't I'll, think so. I'll try to pull that up and see what number that was. Uh, there was uh, somebody who emailed me uh, about, about tumbling tumbling drumming fur and and asked questions because they were looking to build one uh, build a tumbler and asked about what the advantages were and so the my only experience with actually using one was uh i i went to a few fur auctions 
uh, like the Utah Trappers Association for auction in the Montana. And there was a guy that would show up with a tumbler, uh, just a, a big wire drum. Uh, and he would, uh, he'd tumble your fur prior to the auction for like a dollar a piece or whatever the cost was. And it, it, it definitely does a huge job in cleaning in cleaning up the fur. Uh, so okay. I, I, I think it, it is uh, it is a real advantage. Now that's another thing where it's gonna take it's gonna take a lot of space if you want to actually build one. <laughs> yeah, I've I've uh, I've seen quite a few of them, and usually they're they're really large. Yeah, let's see if I can go back to some of these old episodes. Uh, I, I probably somewhere around the the twenties and the thirties. But yeah, you can. I mean, you can really make one out of a, just like a little electric motor and a uh, a plastic uh, drum. You know, like those drums that you get from uh, that they store put chemicals and stuff in or yeah. water drums. But it's it's going to be small, and you're only going to be able to put a few pelts in at a time. Now, is there certain animals that you should be using those for, and certain that you should not, or does it kind of work for everything? Uh, there's certain animals that you can get more benefit from tumbling and those are primarily going to be your long hair fur like uh, fox coyote uh, martin fisher uh, animals that uh, bobcat stuff that that had anything that's going to be going to be sold fur out um, the tumbling is going to clean up that fur and put a shine to it it's basically like uh, corn grit. Uh, it could be sawdust. It's just a uh, an element. Any any uh, medium that you put in there is going to tumble around and mix in with the fur, and it's going to clean it off. Um, okay, so mostly fur side out them. Yeah, I, I think that's where you get the most benefit. Now there are also people that will will take like uh, coons, and if you trap like probably where you're, where you're trapping. Um, if you happen to get like muddy conditions during trapping season and you bring in a bunch of coons and they're all, all muddy and, and pretty, you know, pretty dirty. Uh, there's guys that'll actually skin those and then toss the pelts before they stretch and dry them. They'll just toss them in a tumbler just to clean them up. Um, and then, and then, and, and I mean, people will put them in washing machines and everything. Just, uh, I, I wouldn't go through that, uh, that amount of work for for a coon but in some places you know if you got the tumbler it's it could be worth it they just take up a lot of room <laughs> they sure do i mean if you send uh if you send to an auction house like fur harvesters or nafa uh, they they will drum all of your long-haired fur really yeah uh, any any coyote, bobcat, martin that you send to to fur harvesters, they're they're gonna drum it, and they'll add they'll add a fee for I think they add a dollar per pelt to the cost. But like the, those guys don't mess around, you know. They don't, they want that fur to look as good as it possibly can, and so they recognize that by by drumming it, uh, they're going to get you know they're gonna make have a good product for buyers to look at. And, uh, so, so they, they just automatically do it. You can, if you really like are against that and you don't want them to be drummed, you can put a note on there telling them not to drum your fur, but it's probably going to result in, uh, in that fur not getting, uh, graded as well or put in a, 
you know, as high a quality lot as, as it might otherwise. Because they, they drum it before they grade it. Okay. That makes sense. And I guess going to the next line. Oh, uh, number 30. So podcast episode 30. Um, okay. So we're in the I'll 70s right now. So it's, it's quite a while back. It was back in June of 2018. And uh, it just, just went through that whole, you know, the, the the reasons to drum for the and uh, and how it's done. Yeah, I have to listen to that one. All right, now moving on. Uh, in your opinion, what would be the most the must have tools in your fur shed? <laughs> Boy, that's a good question. Probably because I know there's a lot of people there's a lot of people out there that kind of. They kind of skimp out on a few things. I was talking to one of my buddies at work who traps, and I was talking about the swaging tool or swagging tool yep. for your aluminum ferrules. And he says, oh, well, just stick them in a vise. And I'm sitting there and thinking about it. And I know this is brought up one time in one of your other podcasts. Yep. You thought that hammering your ferrule shut might have a little bit, it, it won't actually cinch as well. Right, it and doesn't has a chance of pulling out. I lost a, I lost one of my first first beavers I ever snared um, for that reason. I actually I don't share that story because I'm not too proud of it. But <laughs> <laughs> um, when I started, I, I was I was cramping down on a vice or I was pounding with a hammer. And uh, if if you really pound hard with a hammer, especially if you're like if if you use uh, maybe instead of an aluminum ferrule, say you use like a, a nut, like a threaded nut. Uh, and you pound, you you hammer it pretty hard. Uh, you're probably going to be fine, um, but I, I'm just not confident in that personally. I don't like to take chances, and uh, you know I was crimping it down on a, a vice, and I was doing that actually with all my my cable stakes and everything. And uh, coming out of the vice, you look at it and you yank on it a little bit. Ah, that's probably fine. Well, a coyote or a beaver, they're really going to put that to the test. And with the swaging tool. You stick that thing in the slot and you pull the lever down and you get the lever all the way down, you know that it's going to be, you're going to have even pressure applied evenly through the whole thing and it's going to crimp down to that cable to the proper size, proper diameter. Um, it's not going to pinch the wire. It's not going to damage the, you know, the cable. It's going to be a good solid hold. And if you look at uh, all, like any cable sticks that you buy that are already pre-made with the cable on them, um, any mostly like snares that you buy if you look at all that stuff it's all gone through a, a bench swaging tool so uh, th that's to me it's a hundred bucks you know <laughs> it's uh sure you could save a little bit but if you're gonna be i don't think that's that's not my indispensable tool but uh, if you are going to be doing a lot of uh, cables and drowners and extension cables and cable stakes and snares uh, that is really a, a good investment in my opinion yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I really don't want to be losing any fur just because I'm skimping out on the ferals. Yeah, I, I've kind of changed over time. When I was when I first started trapping, my thought was um, I need to get as many traps as possible. I need to get as much gear as possible. I want to get I got to get the cheap stuff because I don't have any money. So I'm going to get a bunch. And and now I'm kind of looking back. If I were to start over again, uh, instead of buying like six dozen various traps of all kinds of different brands and cheap and old and used and 
I think I would I would try to get one or two dozen really high quality traps, all the same make, uh, so that you know you can be efficient. You know you've got good quality, and then you can take those traps and like probably a third of the traps that I put in the back of my truck don't even get set. You know I just throw everything in there, and uh, and I I have I have a few in there that are just like they're lower quality traps, and I have them just in case I need them, and I never end up needing them. So <laughs> I I think uh, I think. It, I'm, I'm kind of gravitating more and more towards just trying to go for quality. You know, for instance, my, my one twenties that I use for Martin trapping, I got a lot of Dukes. They're mostly actually, yeah, there are a lot of Dukes and slowly I started selling off some of the Dukes and getting Bridgers. And now my next phase here is I'm going to start to get Belial's and they're, they're super expensive, but uh, eventually I'd like to work up to the point where I'm using all Belial 120s and I think uh, it, it, it pays off in the long term uh, that having the high quality pays off yeah those Belials actually sound like some really good traps I've heard a lot about them yeah in a, a couple episodes ago on the podcast I talked with Kyle uh, I think we were talking beaver trapping in Alabama um, and we talked. He talked about the, you know the Belial Magnums that he was using. Yes. And, yes. And uh, just you know every extra catch. You know you, that trap. It's an expensive trap. It must be. I haven't looked at them in quite a while. It must be thirty dollars for one of those three thirties. Um, but it, if you you know you pick up two, three, four, five extra beavers over the lifetime of that trap, um, you know that that can that can pay off. And then and then the trap you know. The trap's gonna last almost forever, so yeah. As long as you don't get it stolen, that's always something. Uh, one thing I would say for guys that are trapping in really high competition areas, if you have issues with theft, um, that is definitely an advantage to going with a lower quality trap. Because if someone gets on your line and and starts taking traps, you're uh, you're not. It's better to lose a a three dollar trap than it is to lose a ten dollar trap. The uh... The guy that took me coyote trapping, he he's got a cabin up north here in Wisconsin, and he says that his cabin is full to the top with traps because he's been trapping ever since he was a child. Yeah. And uh, so when I asked him if I could buy some traps off of him, he ended up giving me a deal on, on some 110s and 120s, and they're actually victors, mm-hmm. and they're all set up already. And they seem like pretty nice traps. Yeah, those uh, those victors were they were a well made trap. Um, they they most of them most of them they, when you see those victors they're pretty old. So I guess the biggest question is uh, how much were they used and what are the springs like on them? And if they got good strong springs, they're a good trap to use. Yeah. Um, I so, know some of the I know some of the. Uh, the stop loss traps that he gave me he actually has lightning springs uh in them huh. so i know he's been taking care of them yeah cool so the the uh, in i'm still thinking about the indispensable tool in the version <laughs> i know it's a hard question i i think there's because i in course by first day you know i'm doing it not just skinning for um playing around with the lures and do working with traps and everything so there's a bunch of stuff but probably definitely for fur handling there i would have two that i wouldn't skimp on um but one is kind of a throwaway like uh the knife the sharp knife is a no-brainer right 
So I, I like to use the uh, the Havilon Piranha knife, um, and I actually got a Gerber knife. It's just the same exact thing as well, and it's just a you know it's a very simple knife. But it's it's well made, and it uh, takes those heavy duty razor blade uh, blades that are replaceable. So it's a little more expensive than just you know running over a sharpener, but you have a razor sharp knife every time, and you know. I'll, just, I'll pop one of those blades in. I might do uh, five, six muskrats, and then uh, you know the blade's starting to get a little dull. Pop it off, uh, change it out with a new blade. So, so that's that's a big one for me. But really, I mean, as long as you have a sharp knife, it doesn't really matter what knife you use. Uh, however, the big one I would say that that really, really made a difference between efficiency and um, frustration on in the first shed is is the flushing knife uh the before when i started you know flushing knife uh two-handled uh a necker the necker 600 is about 68 70 dollars and there was no way i was going to pay that when i was in high school getting started trapping uh and even you know in college and didn't have a lot of money so I get the $15 model, the you know, the just the cheap one with the <laughs> that junky metal, soft metal blade and and the two wooden ends with the wire wrapped around them. And uh, I had so much frustration. The, o- the only good thing about that that flushing knife was I, <laughs> if I didn't have any heat in the in the shed where I was, I I definitely worked up enough uh, body heat that I didn't <laughs> I kept warm because you're just constantly working and working and working to try to get, uh, you know, with a the beaver there's there's the layers of layers of fat, especially if you're rough skin a beaver, there's layers of fat and then there's a, a layer of flesh that you got to cut through um, on those older beaver especially. And, and it's very hard to cut through that without a nice uh, you know, quality blade. Uh, when I got the Necker 600, actually I borrowed one from, from a guy. And when I got that, it was just the absolute, I, I borrowed it for like two weeks and then I bought one. Uh, there was, that, that was, was uh, it really, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to work up beaver uh, or coon without it. Yeah, that's one thing I plan on doing. I hear that the Necker, the Necker is actually a really nice knife, and uh, I'm thinking that's probably the one I'm actually going to go with. Yep. Right now, I've uh, I've been cleaning out an old milk house here on the farm to uh, make as my first shed. So awesome. There's a lot of stuff in there that has to be moved, but I'm slowly doing it. I want to. Uh, my goal for this year is just to be able to process and uh, skin there in the milk house. So moving around a lot of things and uh, before I go buying anything, that's what I wanted to ask you. Uh, a few recommendations for a few of the tools and uh, yeah, some the flushing beam, going back to the flushing beam. Uh, is there a certain with flushing beam that kind of works for anything uh i think so um mine mine is about mine's just a you know most of them are they're handmade by somebody uh some of them there's people that you know that make them in volume and and sell them through the trapping supply companies sometimes you just go to a convention and there's there's someone that that makes handmade beams uh i guess a 
couple things I would say. First thing with the beam, uh, check and make sure it's a good quality hardwood because I've had guys who've done made homemade beams and uh, I'll start fleshing on them. And, you know, when you get to the end of, of the pelt and you're sliding the fat off and the, the flesh off and the when the knife gets over the wood portion of the beam, if it's a, a softer hardwood or softer wood, that knife will catch into a portion of the wood and, and kind of nick it up and it'll kind of stop you through your motion of flushing and it's no good. I've done it. <laughs> I've done it a little bit and I didn't like it very much. So uh, make sure it's a, a good, good quality hardwood. Um, and, and you know, from someone that knows what they're doing, not just someone who saw a pattern and at a convention and decided they were going to make a bunch of money and, and to sell them the next year. Um, good quality hardwood. And then the, the width, I would say, you know, flushing on a beam. So, so if you're doing like, like, uh, muskrats, I flush muskrats on a mink board. I don't, I don't flush them on a beam. So they, they're so easy to flush. Uh, they're, they're small and I flush them on a mink board with a butter knife. Um, and that it's, it's extremely simple. I don't even worry about any type of beam or flushing knife for rats. Uh, but for coon, beaver, fox, coyote, fisher, um, any of those, is there one size? Um, for me, there is. Uh, mine, mine at the bottom, my beam is about five and a half inches wide and uh, tapering, you know, tapering up to the top. Uh, most guys, and this is, it goes back to what you're comfortable with, but I think most guys that flush a bunch of beaver usually use a wider beam, usually like six or seven inches wide, but you get six, seven inches wide. And then on your Fox, you're going to have, uh, you know, some of your, your Fox are going to be too small to, to use on that beam for in some cases. So, uh, five and a half works for me. I think, uh, six, six is really popular. You could go up to seven, but then you might, you might run into some issues with some of your smaller animals. Okay. But it's all preference. You know, if you only got, you only got five, five and a half inches and you're flushing a beaver, it just means, uh, you have less surface area. You're flushing at one time, uh, which isn't bad if, you know, uh, I'm not a bodybuilder or anything. So, uh, uh, I, a lot of strokes and small area, uh, works pretty well for me. Uh, and, uh, it just means you're going to be moving that pelt over a few more times, but, uh, I'm comfortable with it. That's what I like to use. A butter knife works pretty good for muskrats. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you gotta be one of the common things people do with rats, uh, early on when they first start is they overflush them and they're so, so that layer of like that red layer of flesh that's on beavers and rats that's the uh, saddle right uh not i not necessarily the saddle uh, i've heard the saddle described a couple of different ways but uh okay. saddle is usually like one portion of the pelt that okay. that uh, has a, a thicker layer on it but uh, just in general over most of the body there's going to be um there's going to be a, th a thick layer of meat on a beaver, you have to get that off. You're supposed to get that off, um, in in order to get that dried properly, because uh, a beaver beaver has a much thicker pelt. Muskrats have a thinner pelt, and that actually needs to stay on because it helps pr provide more uh, strength and sturdiness to the pelt. 
So a lot of guys will work and work and try to get that off. And, and uh, either you rip the pelt or you take forever and you get that off. And then the pelt is, uh, a lot of the guys, the fur buyers, I think used to call them papery rats. And you'll notice when you take the pelt off and off the stretcher and it's dried, if you kind of work it back and forth, you'll hear it crinkle like paper. That, okay. mean, that means that was it was overfleshed. So the, right. big, the big thing with the rat is you want to get the fat off. All the fat's got to get off, and it's usually going to be um, – and, of course, you probably see YouTube videos. I, I did a YouTube video on, on flushing rat, but it's not the best one out there. There's a lot of good ones, and it's going to be – there's some areas like right around the head, um, the ears and stuff. There's a few things to clean off there, and then there's going to be some fat right under both of the arms. Um you, you're like the armpit area there's some fat to scrape off there and then there's some stuff down down near the tail but for the most part it it comes off really easy you'll get you know you got chunks of meat you got to take that meat off but not the not the stuff that's laying flat uh, right again as part of the skin okay now when you started out uh trapping uh what was your what was one of your main um, one of your main animals that you were after? Well, mine was pretty unique because most people start out with uh, muskrats because uh, they're they're abundant. They're usually they're easy to trap. Doesn't take a lot. Um, but we didn't really have much for muskrats where I grew up. And my first animal was marten. So we we had uh, a lot of big forest in my area, and we had good populations of marten. Uh, they were kind of like a, a good beginner animal, similar to rats, uh, because, uh, the, you know, it was, you know, 110, 120. I actually started using some 110s or Martin. I would not recommend that. It's not a really good <laughs> trap for him, but it's what we had and it's what I started with. Uh, but 110s and 120s, uh, could, could, uh, run the lines really easy, pretty simple. Uh, it wasn't like a uh, fox and coyote where you had to be careful about scent control you didn't have to do all this prep ahead of time, boiling, dying, waxing, traps. Uh, it, and the sets uh, was pretty easy. It wasn't like, you know, bedding a trap properly and, and uh, making a dirt hole set. Uh, Martin, Martin were quite simple. So that was the first, the first animal that I went after. And how long ago was that? Oh, that would have been... Uh, must have been... 15 years now maybe a little longer than that okay yeah 2000 and 2002 i believe that was right around the time i started trapping so that would have been like 17 years ago yep. all right yeah i plan on uh starting out with muskrat mink and raccoon mainly um like i said in our email i would like to trap everything uh, I think Martin's kind of out of the question because we don't have <laughs> yeah. Martin here in Wisconsin, and the ones that we do have are illegal to trap. Yeah, so. probably not a good idea then. <laughs> no, no. But uh, I do plan on getting into a little bit of uh, coyote snaring or using cable restraints, mm -hmm. but I think uh, that'll be more when the fur shed can handle it. <laughs> right. Uh, it'll be built a little slowly, so I think later on down the road, once I get a little bit more established, uh, I'll start using cable restraints. Yeah. And one thing that I saw that was really cool 
in uh, my trapper's education class is afterwards we had a field day and they kind of showed us if this if you want to trap muskrats this is how you do it if you want to trap otter this is how you do it one of the guys that showed us how to trap otter he used underwater snares on a full set uh, kind of like what you would do for uh, beaver under mm-hmm. ice okay and he actually took a uh, he actually took a fish and nailed it to the bottom near the bottom and he put his snares around it really yeah, it was it was pretty odd. I've never seen or actually even heard of it. I that. have never heard of that set either. <laughs> he was he was using a uh, he was using a sucker, a red horse sucker for that, mm-hmm. and he just put a nail right through its head at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> he put maybe four four snares around it, so yep. three hundred and sixty degrees. That uh, that was kind of odd to me, but he said it's a killer. He said it's a killer trap. Yeah, so your otter season must go uh, through that under ice period then. Yes, yes. Yeah, our otter season ends the end of December, um, and then beaver, really that's about the time our under ice beaver trapping and snaring kind of gets going for the most part. So we don't have the opportunity to do much of much of that. Uh, we can keep otters in incidental beaver sets, but obviously – you can't make a set with fish as bait and <laughs> consider it a beaver set. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, we we get them occasionally in snares, but uh, it's not not too common. And then uh, the other thing that he was doing is uh, when he taught us how to catch beaver when he was using three thirties, um, he was actually able to hook up a continuity meter to to his. Uh, <laughs> to his yeah yeah so you could see whether the trap was set off exactly have you yeah. ever heard of that before i have yeah yeah i the the one most of the time i think guys spend more time uh, tinkering with stuff like that than it's worth <laughs> uh the the one time though that i've seen where i i really thought it was useful was there's guys up in alaska that were uh under ice beaver trapping where they would have um if you know after a week or so of really cold super cold weather even if they insulated their holes uh they you know you get quite a bit of ice freezing in the hole so they they didn't want to chip through six eight ten twelve inches of ice just to see if that trap was set off so uh i've seen guys do that and and uh all you gotta do is basically take your continuity meter and uh, you got a wire going to the top of the the ice and and attach the two uh the two probes to the two wires and if you got continuity then the trap's still still set and not set, not fired off and if you don't then oh i better chip through i probably got a beaver yeah <laughs> it was pretty cool when uh, he showed us that yeah all right so you got anything else uh i don't have anything else written down um, is there any advice that you would give to a new trapper? Uh, probably, probably two main things. And, and I really like where your head's at. I think you're heading the right direction. Um, in terms of one main, I, a piece of advice I would give is start simple and try not to do everything at once. And I think you're right on track with that where, uh, when I got started, I, I wanted to trap everything and it's good. And, and it's, uh, it works. It works fine. But if you try to do too many things without figuring 
uh, anything in particular out, uh, you're, you're going to be running around and, and you may not get good at any one type of trapping. <laughs> so uh, it really, whatever a guy wants to do is, is great. Get out trapping, have fun. Uh, but, but I think there are a lot of benefits to focusing on one thing, uh, trying to get it figured out, and then moving on to the next, next uh, sort of uh, type of trapping that you want to do. The second big piece of advice I would give is uh, scouting and understanding uh, to learning how to read sign and fi- figuring out where the fur bears are is is the biggest uh, factor that's going to play into your success. If you want to go muskrat trapping, um, you could have uh, 10 dozen traps in the back of your truck and you could be ready to put on 200 miles a day and you could go around all kinds of uh, areas. But if you, if you haven't actually scouted out and figured out where the rats were and where to make your sets, then uh, you're not going to be as successful. So, so probably the first few years, and, and I still find myself doing this, uh, where I'm trapping, I've been back here for five, six years now, and, and I still find that I need to, I need to be fi- finding new areas. Uh, I get one place that I trap and I figure it out and and I know, well, this spot is good for 20, 30 muskrats every year, maybe on a good, bad year, maybe 12 or 15. Um, but I haven't found 10 or 15 of those spots. And that's really where you become more effective is you, you find new places and you you can go back to those year after year once you've scouted them out and, and figure out where they are. But if you just run around in the truck and and put traps everywhere, uh, you're not gonna you're not gonna learn those, uh, or it's gonna take a lot a lot more. I think a lot of time spent early on just scouting is gonna save you a lot of time in the future. Okay. Now I know that you're a big reader. Uh, you do a lot of reading when it comes to trapping. Is there any book recommendations that you would give to a new trapper? Um, I think the, so. The, you got the Kronk Muskrat. Uh, was it the Muskrat book you got from? Yes, uh, Kronk Scientific Muskrat Trapping. Yep, that's a good one. Um, yeah, there's a there's a guy is his name is escaping me right now. I think it, it's. Uh, I'll I'll put a link to it on the on the show notes of this uh, podcast. Um, I think its name is I think his name is Mitchell Ricketts or Stanley Ricketts. It's a, it's a muskrat. Anyway, this guy wrote, it's like the muskrat trappers Bible or something. And it is the foremost authority on, on muskrat trapping and understanding muskrat populations. It's just, it's an incredible resource. Uh, So I'll, I'll link up to that and I'll send you an email on that with that book. Uh, But that is, that is an awesome muskrat book. Um, probably for like fox and coyotes um to me the the book it it may not may not well anything charles dobbins uh you know is pretty much a no-brainer uh because he's kind of a a legendary teacher in in all different aspects of trapping Uh, but one that one that i really like that wasn't necessarily like how to trap uh, was uh Craig O'Gorman's High Rolling Fox Trapping, as well as uh, Hoof Beats of a Wolfer. And with with O'Gorman's stuff, 
uh, I got turned on to him because the guy that taught me how to trap, my first trapping mentor was an O'Gorman guy. And uh, so I read all the stuff and, and it wasn't like, it's not, it's not a real beginner necessarily beginner trapper resource, but it, it really, um, it really gets you in the mindset of, of a professional trapper. It's kind of a, uh, an interesting read and it keep it keeps your attention it's not very he's not the best writer but he's very motivational and and he thinks about animals and thinks about running a trap line in, in a different way and i think it it uh it gets you thinking about a lot of the things that you should be considering uh so so those are a couple i think probably the best ones that i've found for uh there's a lot of trapping books for people starting out, but most of them were written in the 70s and the 80s. In the modern times, uh, there's not a lot of trapping books that are coming out anymore. Even if you, if you look online and you look on catalogs and uh, for trapping books, the majority of those were written 20, 30 years ago or, or longer. Probably the best ones that I've found that are written more recently and are very simple down to earth, uh, just starting from the ground up would be the the books from Cotts Brothers. So Kyle and Kellen, uh, Kyle has written more of them. Kellen just came out with the Black Book of Coyote Trapping, which is a really good one. Uh, but Kyle has some uh, uh, raccoon trapping made simple, beaver trapping made simple, um, and and those uh, I I found that uh, they he considered a lot of things that I. I just kind of gloss over, just I assume people know about it, this or know about that. Uh, but he covered a lot of stuff that, that was very helpful for a beginner trapper. Awesome. I'll have to swing by their shop and actually check that out. Oh, you you must be pretty close to him? No, no, online. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was going to say, you are from the Midwest, but that's a big area. <laughs> now, they're in Illinois, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So they are right underneath me. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe the next time I swing through Illinois, I'll have to hit them guys up. <laughs> yeah, their their website's pretty easy to order from, and and uh, yeah, there's just a pile of stuff there. Just just uh, get under books, and you'll you'll find a whole bunch of stuff there. Awesome. All right. Well, other than that, I don't think I have anything else. All right. Well, hey, I really uh, enjoyed talking with you, man. Um, appreciate it and those are some good questions you may have a future as an interviewer <laughs> <laughs> yeah i felt like i was doing the one i was uh interviewing you <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so brandon uh i hope this helped uh feel free to follow up with me uh with any other questions and i think it'd be great to see how you progress uh this coming season and uh maybe come back on uh after trapping season and let us know how, how things panned out Hey, that sounds like a really good idea. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. Well, take care and uh, and uh, good luck getting ready for trapping season. All right. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye. Bye.